Our red scripture lesson this morning is drawn from the book of the prophet Daniel, chapter 7. In the first year of Belshazzar, king of Babylon, Daniel had a dream and visions of his head while on his bed. Then he wrote down the dream, telling the main facts. Daniel spoke, saying, I saw in my vision by night, and behold, the four winds of heaven were stirring up the great sea. And the four great, be- and four great beasts came up from the sea, each different from the other. The first was like a lion and had eagle's wings. I watched till its wings were plucked off, and it was lifted up from the earth and made to stand on two feet like a man, and a man's heart was given to it. And suddenly another beast, a second, like a bear. It was raised up on one side and had three ribs in its mouth between its teeth. And they said thus to it, Arise, devour much flesh. After this I looked, and there was another, like a leopard, which had on its back four wings of a bird. The the beast also had four heads, and dominion was given to it. After this I saw in the night visions, and behold, a fourth beast, dreadful and terrible, exceedingly strong. It had huge iron teeth. It was devouring, breaking in pieces, and trampling the residue with its feet. It was different from all the beasts that were before it, and it had ten horns. I was considering the horns, and there was another horn, a little one, coming up among them, before whom three of the first horns were plucked out by the roots. And there, in this horn, were eyes like the eyes of a man, and a mouth speaking pompous words. I watched till thrones were put in place, and the Ancient of Days was seated. His garment was white as snow, and the hair of his head was like pure wool. His throne was a fiery flame, and its wheels a burning fire. A fiery stream issued and came forth from before him. A thousand thousands ministered to him. Ten thousand times ten thousand stood before him. The court was seated, and the books were opened. I watched, then, because of the sound of the pompous words which the horn was speaking. I watched till the beast was slain and its body destroyed and given to the burning flame. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away, and his kingdom, the one which shall not be destroyed. I, Daniel, was grieved in my spirit within my body, and the visions of my head troubled me. I came near to one of those who stood by and asked him the truth of all this, so he told me and made known to me the interpretation of these things. 
those great beasts, which are four, are four kings which arise out of the earth. But the saints of the Most High shall receive the kingdom and possess the kingdom forever, even forever and ever. Then I wish to know the truth about the fourth beast, which was different from all the others, exceedingly dreadful, with its teeth of iron and its nails of bronze, which devoured and broke in pieces and trampled the residue with its feet, and about the ten horns, which were on its head, and about the other horn, which came up, before which three fell, namely that horn which had eyes and a mouth which spoke pompous words, whose appearance was greater than his fellows. I was watching, and the same horn was making war against the saints and prevailing against them. Until the Ancient of Days came, and the judgment was made in favor of the saints of the Most High, and the time came for the saints to possess the kingdom. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it, and break it in pieces. The ten horns are ten kings, who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time, and times, and half a time. But the court shall be seated, and they shall take away his dominion, to consume and destroy it forever. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under... and the. Then the kingdom and dominion and the greatness of the kingdoms under the whole of heaven shall be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. His kingdom is an everlasting kingdom, and all dominions shall serve and obey him. This is the end of the account. As for me, Daniel, my thoughts greatly troubled me, and my countenance changed, but I kept the matter in my heart." This is the word of the Lord. The book of Daniel splits fairly neatly down the middle. The first six chapters of Daniel are historical accounts. Now, they include prophetic visions. In fact, the visions can be the central focus of the chapters, but they are character sketches working their way through Daniel's life, and they go in chronological order. When you hit the middle of the book, things change. They are still given uh, time period stamps. You're told when things happen, but there's no longer any real uh, character sketch that happens. It's all focused on visions totally, and specifically four visions, and we have just seen the first one. As we move into this section, I think it would be wise to consider the words of Matthew Henry, who uh, speaks to where we're going. The six former chapters of this book were historical. We now enter with fear and trembling upon the six latter, which are prophetical, wherein are many things dark and hard to be understood, 
which we dare not positively determine the sense of, and yet many things plain and profitable, which I trust God will enable us to make a good use of. In this chapter, we have, first, Daniel's vision of the four beasts, second, his vision of God's throne of government and judgment, and third, the interpretation of these visions given to him by an angel who stood by. Whether those visions look as far forward as the end of time, or whether they were to have a speedy accomplishment, is hard to say. Nor are the most judicious interpreters agreed concerning it. I think that is a wise bit of admonition from Matthew Henry. When we enter into visions, visions are symbolic, and one needs to travel with a humble mind. But that being said, it is given to us as revelation from God and is profitable for our instruction. What do we find here? Well, as I said before, this is a split in the book, and everything has been chronological up to this point, but this chapter takes us back behind the last two chapters. It is before 5 and 6 and takes us to the first year of the reign of Belshazzar. He is mentioned in the very beginning of our text, but what English translations don't tend to do, because it would be very subtle to try to do it, uh, Daniel mentions him by name, but with a slight change to his name. When we met him in chapter 5, his name was Belshazzar, to pronounce it directly, and it means something to the effect of from Baal comes good health, from Bel comes good health. Daniel has slightly altered the, the, uh, uh, the AEIOUs, what are those? Vowels, there we go. He has slightly altered the vowels in the Aramaic original, which means Bel is on fire. Uh, at the very beginning of our uh, text, Daniel is letting us know he is seeing the fall of Babylon and uh, the Babylons that come from Babylon. Bel is the principal god of Babylon, and Bel does not actually bless, no matter what Belshazzar's name says. In truth, Bel is under attack and is set on fire. The real overlap to the earliest part of the book, however, is chapter 2. In chapter 2, Nebuchadnezzar had a dream, just like Daniel had a dream, and the uh, similarities are striking. In both dreams, you have images of kingdoms, and there are four kingdoms, and they are symbolically represented as coming one after the other. In the first dream, you have the great statue, its head of gold uh, coming down into silver and brass and then iron, and coming out of the iron down into the toes is actually clay and iron. But Daniel is told this, this image of a great statue is four successive kingdoms. Well, in this vision, that is exactly what Daniel is told these are as well. It is four kingdoms. They are successive. Um, they appear to be the very same kingdoms. Uh, 
even down to the fourth one, which has ten horns on its head in this vision, and has ten toes in the vision of the idol, the toes being partially of iron and partially of clay. And the, uh, the major teaching, what God wants you to walk away from the visions, seems to be, if not exactly the same, so similar as to be of no odds. The, the punchline of Daniel 2, if you will, could be summed up in verse 44 and 45 of chapter 2. Inasmuch as you saw that the stone was cut out of the mountain without hands, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold, the great God, of, the great God has made known to the king what will come to pass after this. The dream is certain and the interpretation true. I should have started in verse 44. And in, those, and in the days of these kings, the God of heaven will set up a kingdom which shall never be destroyed, and the kingdom shall not be left to other people. It shall break in pieces and consume all these kingdoms, and it shall stand forever. The, the uh, focus of the vision for King Nebuchadnezzar was God is going to set up a kingdom and it's going to be totally different than this kingdom. It's going to be a kingdom that God establishes. It's not made with hands. Every human kingdom is the result of arrogant and pretentious men using violence to build an empire. That's, that's how they appear. But this will be a kingdom made without hands. It will be eternal All these kingdoms, for all their pomp and glory, they will disappear. They will be succeeded one after the other. The great golden head which represents Babylon will give way to the coming of Persia, and Persia will give way to the coming of the Greeks, and the Greeks will give way to the Romans, and the Romans themselves will give way to inheritor kingdoms. There will be ten of them. They are some weak, some strong, but history will go by And the work of men's hands, the work of their determined labor to build an empire will fade. It will be crushed. But there will be a kingdom that is eternal. And this kingdom will be established by God to be destructive of all these other kingdoms. The vision that Nebuchadnezzar saw was that this rock was hewn out of a mountain, not by hands, It came rolling down, and it hit the great statue, and all the great kingdoms of the earth represented by the statue are smashed into pieces. God will raise up a kingdom. His kingdom will be forever. It will destroy the kingdoms of men. That imagery cannot be seen as it will make the kingdoms better. It will be added to man's kingdoms and sanctify them. Uh, the kingdoms come to a crushing end because God's kingdom is created. Well, in this vision before us, the, uh, the major focus is the same. If you look at verse 13 and 14, this is what we read there, and it's effectively repeated again at the end of the chapter, but in 13 and 14 we read, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one like the Son of Man, 
coming with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days, and they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom, that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion, which shall not pass away. And his kingdom is the one which shall not be destroyed. Very, very similar indeed. Four great kingdoms, another kingdom created in the heavens, another kingdom where the one who comes to receive it comes from the clouds in heaven, so he is actually above heaven coming to heaven. He will receive a kingdom, and that kingdom will be eternal. It will have no end. That is the high point of the vision, the high point of the dream, just like in Nebuchadnezzar's dream. So, one wonders, being so similar, why does God give Daniel this dream? Is there any advance upon the revelation? Is there any differences that take us beyond what Nebuchadnezzar had seen? Well, the answer is yes, and very significant. In the first vision, Nebuchadnezzar saw a giant statue. If you are a a Babylonian, if you're a Chaldean, and you see a giant statue, especially made of gold and silver and bronze, uh, even iron, what does that imagery say to you if you see a giant statue, culturally? What happens in the very next chapter? Well, Nebuchadnezzar, who had the dream, said, I'm going to make a giant statue. And what did he make it out of? Made out of gold, which is what he saw Babylon being represented as. And he made it as a depiction of his gods and had people worship it. So if you are a Babylonian and you're giving a vision of a giant statue like this, what you see is you see an idol, because that's how you worship the gods. It's culturally what you do. But then you see the God of heaven create a rock and just totally smash the idol. How do you interpret that? Well, you interpret that as the God of heaven is against idolatry. And by the way, what is the idol really? Well, it's the nations of the earth. The head is Babylon, the the upper part is Persia, yada, 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 you know this. Um, God has pictured the nations of the world as an idol. And Nebuchadnezzar could not miss that. And so the message seems to be very clear in the first vision. What are the kings of the earth really? What? have they brought to themselves by their violence and aggression, what are they? Well, they're idolatry. They have lifted themselves up to be worshipped by men, to replace God. Uh, Their kingdoms are idols, and the statue is going to fall down. But in this vision, we begin at a very different place. We begin with Daniel dreaming about the sea. And then there are the four winds of heaven. 
And the winds begin to blow upon the sea, and the sea churns and tosses, and out of the sea come the four beasts. What does the sea often represent in Scripture? What do the four winds of heaven often represent? Not just here, but other places. If you go looking from cover to cover, you'll find, it's not always true, but it's very often true, the prophets in particular use the imagery of the rolling chaotic sea as an image of humanity in total. It is the world of men. And just like the, the channels of the sea blow in different directions, and it's wide and vast, and you have no idea the depth of the sea, uh, that's the way mankind is presented. It is, uh, covers the whole earth, it's complex, it's, it's confounded, it's chaos, it can drown you. It's a pretty good uh, symbol for mankind. But the four winds of heaven blowing on the water and making the beasts come forth, what is the symbolism there? Well, the winds of heaven are in God's control. Who, who controls the winds? Does any man control the wind, even today? Can we control the weather? The weather is a symbol of God's divine control, and the sea is there, and heaven begins to blow upon the waters, and the waters churn, and the beasts come out of the water. So, if in the first vision we see that the nations of the world are made as idols, in the second vision there is a great contrast to that. Who has brought the beasts forth? Well, it is divine providence. They are idols. They are the work of sinful man's hands. They are designed to replace God. But who brings the next day forward? Who designs tomorrow? Who sets up eras and then replaces them with other eras? Well, the answer is the God of heaven, who controls the four winds of heaven. It has been God's will to bring these beasts out of the sea. It is his purpose and his plan. So if in the first vision we see the sinfulness of man's idolatrous heart... In the second vision, that is contrasted with the fact that the sovereign hand of God has brought about all things, including these beasts that have come from the sea. In Nebuchadnezzar's vision, Babylon was the head of gold. But it was just like all other kingdoms, and it was crushed. In this vision, Babylon is represented as a lion with wings, which, in fact, is Babylon's national symbol. It would be sort of like God giving you a dream and you seeing a flying bald eagle. Um, here, it's very different. It starts off as a, as a creature. It starts off as a, a monster, a, a, a beast with wings. But the wings are tore off, and it's made to stand up and walk like a man, and it's given, quote, a man's heart. What is the symbolism of that? Well, the wings on the back of that, of that beast in Babylon's reckoning demonstrated the swiftness of their cavalry and their warriors. They were known for their lightning attacks. And if you read the book of Habakkuk, 
Habakkuk alludes to that. You know, the Babylonians sweep in, they sweep out, uh, they're quick as lightning, um, but the wings are tore off, and then the beast is turned into a man. What has happened in Babylon? Well, God has been at work, and the greatest conqueror of all time at that point, Nebuchadnezzar, had been grabbed hold of by God, and God had stopped him in the midst of his conquering, and God had converted him by driving him insane, by forcing him to acknowledge the God of heaven, by bringing him to repentance, and by transforming the kingdom of Babylon through its king. And so, in the vision, God shows what he's done with Babylon. He has grabbed hold of the greatest conqueror, and he has shaped and molded it to his own purposes. He has grabbed hold of uh, the man that most people would think of as the most wicked on earth and has converted that man. It's about a kingdom, a kingdom that is not the four kingdoms that come from the sea or are represented by the statue. But we get more information on that kingdom in this vision. In the first vision, we saw the kingdom. It was the rock. But we never heard anything about who would rule it. We were told the kingdom would be eternal, but an eternal kingdom could have a successive line of kings. But here, the message is very different. There is one who is like the Son of Man. He is like unto men. He is like someone who is descended from Adam. And yet he has to be described as like the Son of Man. There is something very, very different about him, though he is like the Son of Man. Uh, It might have something to do with the fact that he is above heaven. That when we first meet him, all the holiness and glory of heaven is underneath him. He is above heaven. He has to come down to be in heaven. So if heaven is high and glorious and perfect, if there is no sin or want to be found in the heaven of heavens where the throne of God is, this one is just above it. He is brought near the ancient of days. A title for the God of gods, the true God. Uh, Ain't nobody older than God, because God's eternal. He is the Ancient of Days. Nobody has a birthday that's older than him. And he is seated on the throne, but this one who will be king, he is brought into the throne room, and around God, there are thousands of angels and ten thousands upon ten thousands of lesser angels. They are worshiping him, and they are there to do his bidding at a moment's command, But they are not described as being able to come near him. They surround him, but they are not worthy to be near him. They are the angels. They are the ones that when a prophet Daniel or an apostle John see them, they fall on their face as if dead because in the context of their perfection and glory, they feel the weight of their sins and it drives them to deadness. But they are not able to come into the Ancient of Days presence, like this one. This one is brought right 
to the throne of the Ancient of Days. And there is no harm that happens to him. He is brought in by God's good pleasure. He is allowed to stand right before God, and there is no repercussions. What shall we make of that? If a man were to be brought to the throne of God, what would happen to him? When Isaiah saw the glory of God in the heavens and saw just the train of the robe of God dripping out of heaven and into the temple, when he saw just the train of the robe, he cried out, Woe is me, for I am undone. I am a man of sinful lips. I dwell among people of sinful lips. To very simply see the train of God's robe drove Isaiah to despair. What would happen if you brought a man into the throne room of God and put him right before God? But this man has the right to be there. He is of such a nature that the holiness, the righteousness, the perfection, the burning glory of God has no effect on him. And to him, the Ancient of Days gives the kingdom. It is not given to multiple kings. There will not be a succession of rulers who will sit upon a throne. It is given to one man. He will be king of the eternal kingdom. And if he is going to be the king of the eternal kingdom, he himself must be eternal. And in fact, we are assured in this passage, his rule will never pass away. He will not have sons and pass them on to them. There will not be a succession of popes who will sit upon a ruling throne. There will be one man who will sit upon the throne of the kingdom forever. We now see the eternal kingdom is the kingdom of an eternal king. And this is an advancement on the, the revelation. We see a kingdom... But we see also that it is said twice that it will, quote, be given to the people, the saints of the Most High. Historically, when a monarch threw up his symbol over villages and provinces, the average person in the village and province in their heart did not say, yay, this will be good for me. Throughout most time, whenever a ruler declared their rule, the subjugated would groan and know that we have another parasite over us to drain us dry. That's what God said in 1 Samuel 8. You want a king like the kings that men have? Sure, they're going to take everything you've got and give you nothing back. But in this vision, the kingdom is not just given to the king, though it is, it will be about the king, it will focus on the king, but the kingdom is given to the subjects. It's described as a blessing. Twice in the vision it is emphasized this will be given to a certain people and it will be a blessing to them and they they will take it as one. It is given to the saints of God, which is an interesting way of putting it. Uh, The people of God at this time identify themselves as Israel or Judah. They identify themselves as Jews. 
But that is not the language that we hear in heaven. What we hear in heaven is that there is a people who will be saints. The term saint, we find it first in the Levitical law. It's used for implements in the temple that are set apart to the service of God. The the bowl, the knife, uh, it could have been used for uh, secular purposes, but we're going to take it, and it's not going to be any different than any other bowl or knife, but we're going to take it and we're going to set it apart so now it is holy to God and God is going to use it for his most holy purposes. A kingdom is coming in the future, Daniel sees, that will be made up of people who will be like those implements. They will be set apart to God's service. They will be set apart for God's use. And everyone that that is true of will be given the kingdom. It will be a gift to the ruled. It is a kingdom that is established, quote, in the days of these kings. That line is not here in chapter 7, but it is here in chapter 2. And the fact of it is seen in this chapter. There will be a kingdom that begins while these four kingdoms exist. But in this one, it is slightly different in the way it's pictured. In the first dream, the kingdom rolls down the hill and smashes the kingdom of men. You could get from the imagery, this is going to be a quick process. That God, having decided to create a kingdom, God offended at the rulers of the earth and their idolatry. God is just going to smash them into pieces. His kingdom will spring up. It will be quick, nearly painless. The king will rule. The days of glory will come in. The first vision doesn't require that. But if you only have the first vision, you might think that. But in this dream... There's emphasis on the idea of time passing. In verse 8, for instance, we read, uh, uh, hmm. no, I'm sorry, verse 12. As for the rest of the beasts, they had their dominion taken away, yet their lives were prolonged for a season and a time. Historically, that's true. The four kingdoms that are being declared in this vision are Babylon, Persia, uh, Greece, which breaks into four kingdoms, and you'll note that the, the third beast has four wings and four heads, and then Rome, and Rome will have uh, successor empires, and they're mentioned here as ten heads, ten horns, that sort of thing. Um, all of the kingdoms that are described... Even once they are defeated, they continue for a while. Babylon exists at the time of the New Testament. Uh, Persia continues to be a separate nation up until the time that Islam destroys it. That's true, but why would God reveal that to us? Well, the answer is the matter of time. God is going to create a kingdom. It is going to take place in history. It is going to destroy these kingdoms. But if you think it is going to destroy them instantaneously, that's not the way it's going to work. The kingdom is going to be in the midst of these kingdoms 
But time has to go by. The fourth kingdom is described as having ten successor kingdoms. What are the horns? Well, the angels say they're ten kings that come out of that king. And history has shown us that the great conquering empires of the world have been what? They've been successor empires from Rome. What is France? What is Italy? What is England? What is Germany? They're all successor states. Russia considers itself a Roman successor state. Time will go by, these kingdoms will rise up, and the kingdom will be among men, but the kingdom will not have smashed these kingdoms to pieces yet as this time goes by. And among those ten successor kings, there will be yet another kingdom rise up, and it will throw down three of those successor kingdoms. Which suggests, by the way, that those successor kingdoms will exist at the same time as each other, because how else could the horn throw three of them down together? This kingdom will rise up, um, and the, the ruler of it will take blasphemy against God and idolatry pretty much as high as it can go. There are a number of very wise erudite and godly interpreters who would interpret that horn, the one that rises up, it has eyes like a man, which suggests that it's on the prowl. It's, 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 it's a dangerous creature looking to devour. And that blasphemes, that talks great swelling words, they would say it is Antiochus Epiphanes. And admittedly, uh, Antiochus does his very best to look like this horn. He arises on the world stage, tries to destroy the worship of God. He does try to change times and seasons. Uh, He goes to war against God's people. He's very much like this little horn. But, uh, and again, I read the the admonition from uh, uh, Matthew Henry to, to say, you know, you want to be humble in how you interpret things. But we're introduced to the Grecians in the third beast, and you have the fourness of the wings and the heads, and Antiochus is one of those heads. And then you have the fourth beast, which is different than the others, and in the other vision it was Rome. I find it improbable that this is specifically Antiochus, but the reason why it's hard to tell is because that's the way kings are. Antiochus really just is better than most by his time period, at being a wicked replacement for God, but he wasn't the first, and he certainly hasn't been the last. There have been many, many human rulers who have stood up and said, like in communist Cuba, uh, telling school children, if you want ice cream, why don't you cry out to God for it? And then when the little kids cried out to God and no ice cream came, they then told them, why don't you cry out to the state for ice cream? And then when they did that, they rolled in trucks of ice cream and gave them ice cream. That's really just the spirit of human rule. That's what they do. And so Antiochus fits the little horn pretty good because all human rulers are going to. But this seems to be even in our future, in my way of thinking. Again, I want to be very humble. I don't want to declare things that I cannot. But the emphasis seems to be on the vision that the kingdom is going to grow while these events take place. And not only is the kingdom going to grow while these events take place, uh, 
The major addition of the revelation of this vision is that it's going to take place while in God's providence for a certain amount of time, God is going to allow the wicked to crush the saints for a while. Consider verse 8. Verse 8 says... Uh, he was speaking pompous words, and then God comes in judgment, but he's able to speak the words. Consider verse 23 through 25. Thus he said, The fourth beast shall be a fourth kingdom on earth, which shall be different from all other kingdoms, and shall devour the whole earth, trample it and break it into pieces, The ten horns are ten kings who shall arise from this kingdom, and another shall arise after them. He shall be different from the first ones, and shall subdue three kings. He shall speak pompous words against the Most High, shall persecute the saints of the Most High. And what's really interesting about the term persecute is if you translated it fully literally, it would mean he is going to wear them out. Uh, it, it pictures a campaign of attrition. He is patient. He is going to persecute the saints. He's going to make their lives miserable, and it's going to be for the long haul. Shall persecute the saints of the Most High, and shall intend to change times and law. Then the saints shall be given into his hand for a time and times and half a time. In Nebuchadnezzar's vision, the stone just smashed that idol down. But the saints of God need to know it's not going to be that easy or painless, and the rulers of this world are not going to give way to the rule of God with a simple, here's your seat. They are going to persecute the kingdom, they're going to persecute the servants of the king, and in God's providence you will see what looks like injustice, because it is. God, in his plan and his purpose, is going to allow the kings of the earth, the very worst of them, this little horn, is going to allow them to succeed some. And you're going to see the saints trampled. You're going to see the saints defeated from time to time. God never hides anything. God would never be given to be a speaker for the Optimist Club because God reveals the truth. And the truth is, the saints of the earth are given the kingdom, but they are not given the kingdom in its fullness until the Ancient of Days sits upon his throne and judges. And what triggers that judgment is the little horn. In verse 8, which I keep referring to, you have the introduction of his pompous words, and then what comes right next is the vision of the Ancient of Days pulling his throne out. The throne's wheels are on fire. There is flame coming from underneath the throne. This is the moment of God's judgment. And when we go further in the passage, we return again to the moment of God's judgment the destruction of the little horn, the destruction of the fourth beast, and then we're told the saints possess the kingdom. It is here we have a new word. The kingdom has been given to the saints, and they are part of the kingdom, 
But now with the destruction of the little horn, they fully possess it. They can lay hold of it. It is in its eternal and perfect state. The judgment has come, but it has come later in time than most people would have expected. The message is the same as what you read in Revelations 13, verses 1 to 10. In fact, much of the language is the same. The passage begins, Then I stood on the sand of the sea, and I saw a beast rising up out of the sea, having seven heads and ten horns. So there we have ten again. And on his horns, ten crowns, which is a symbol of of rule, and on his heads, a blasphemous name. So it's not just one of the horns that are blasphemous, it's literally all of them. Now, the beast which I saw was like a leopard, his feet was like the feet of a bear, and his mouth like the mouth of a lion. And the dragon gave him his power, his throne, and great authority. And I saw one of the heads as if it had been mortally wounded, and his deadly wound was healed. And all the world marveled and followed the beast. So they worshipped the dragon who gave authority to the beast, and they worshipped the beast, saying, Who is like the beast? Who is able to make war with him? And he was given a mouth, speaking great things and blasphemies. His name, his tap... Great things blessed me, and he was given authority to continue for 42 months, which is the same as time, times, and half a time if you're talking about years. Then he opened his mouth in blasphemy against God to blaspheme his name, his tabernacle, and those who dwell in heaven. And it was granted to him to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given him over every tribe, tongue, and nation. And all who dwell on the earth will worship him whose names have not been written in the book of life of the Lamb slain from the foundation of the world. So he's going to be given victories. And the world is going to worship him. Everyone who is not in the Lamb's book of life. If anyone has ears to hear, let him hear. He who leads into captivity shall go into captivity. He who kills with the sword must be killed with the sword. And this is the punchline for John. Here is the patience and the faith of the saints. When John sees a very similar vision, when he sees that in God's providence... God is going to let evil have its way for a while. What is happening? Well, a lot of things, and he doesn't actually record a lot of them, but the most important for us is, here is the faith and the patience of the saints. Who gets the kingdom? The saints. Who are you? The saints. You've been set apart to serve God. But... You dwell in a wicked world, and in God's providence, wickedness will at times succeed. And when it does, it's going to strike you hard. Twice in chapter 7, Daniel says, In my spirit, I was deeply troubled. And in fact, that's the way the passage ends. He says, 
my countenance changed and I was deeply troubled. Well, absolutely. God reveals that in his plan, wickedness will have victories. This is a testing of your faith. This is a testing of your patience. In the true economy of God, who does God truly care about? He cares about you. But part of what he is doing, because he cares about you, is sanctifying you. And this is one of the most terrible and dreadful ways he's doing it. But he loves his people. The saints will be given the kingdom. Time will come when all the others are destroyed, in flaming fire in this case. But the kingdom is now and not yet. Jesus Christ has come to the Ancient of Days. He has been given the kingdom. The kingdom in the time of these kings exists. But it is not as it shall be. And if you are like Daniel and you are troubled in your spirit and shaken to your core because you see what's happening in the world of men, join the club. Because that's what's going to happen in the hearts of saints. We are watching the providence of God play out. We're not called to be passive, but nothing is hid from us. The beast will trample. The beast will devour And God calls upon his saints to have patience and to have faith. If that troubles you, that's part of the passage. That's part of what I'm preaching. It is a dark world you live in. It's a world that has been cursed by God for the sins of man. Every nook and corner of our world is cursed. And every nook and corner of man's nature is sinful. And God is working in this dark world to show who he is. In the book of Ephesians, in chapter 2, there's a passage that I used to always take as being future, but the way it's written, it's not. It's actually present. It's Ephesians chapter 2 and verse 4 through 7. But God, who is rich in mercy, because of his great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. So this is something God has already done. It's happening now. God has made us alive together with Christ. By grace you have been saved. And notice the tense of what comes next is exactly the same. And raised us up together and made us sit together in the heavenly places in Christ Jesus. For most of my ministry, I took that as that's what's going to happen at the end of time. We'll be seated at the table with the Lord. That's the way the story ends. But the way Paul is describing it is we're in heaven now. We have been seated at his table now. We are part of his family. Uh, We have fellowship with God. We don't see heaven with our eyes. We don't hear it with our ears. But in a very real spiritual way, heaven is your home and you're already there. When, when the body dies and the spirit returns to God who gave it, you're going to feel like you've always been there because you have. Um, you're in heaven now in a sense. And why are you there? Well, verse 7 says, that in the ages to come he might show the exceeding riches of his grace in his kindness toward us 
in Christ Jesus. So what you have Paul saying there is what God is doing is about showing who knows who what God is by the way he treats us. He is demonstrating himself and he is demonstrating the truth through what he's doing on earth, showing anyone who can see God is gracious, God is loving, God is kind, God redeems sinners. Apparently, everything happening in history right now is required for that. How would we know that God is gracious if we weren't sinners? And if we are sinners, and if we are redeemed by grace, and if we are no different from our neighbors who make up these four kingdoms and all the rest of the world, and if God has been kind to us and redeemed us out of what we could have been, you see, we might not have been saints. We might not have been the trampled. We might have been something far worse. We might have been the trampler. We might have been the oppressor. We might have been the selfish, cruel beast, but we are not. And why are we not? It is because of the grace of God, and we are called to see what happens in time and space, and it is designed to make us think about God and think about ourselves. If this is really the world we're in, and these things are really happening, what does that tell us about God, and what does it tell us about man? See, we could pass through our lives and never think about that. We could easily sleepwalk. But the winds of heaven are blowing upon the waters of the earth and bringing about times and seasons. And some of them are exceedingly dark. Why are they dark? It's because the beasts that come out of the water come out of human nature. And that would be us if it were not God's grace. God calls us to consider and realize we are not the one able to be brought close to God in ourselves. We are not the one, the angels stand apart, and God says, come into my presence, for you are good. We are not that. But there is one who is, and our vision should turn to him. We should see the one the Ancient of Days will accept and realize the grace of God is in him and his kingdom And for no other reason but the grace of God, I am a saint of God, and to me the kingdom is given. Though kingdoms rage, the kingdom will be given to the saints. Thanks be to God.